welcome to the Experto Crede podcast. I'm your host, Lee Silverberg, online editor of the Minnesota Law Review, Volume 106. With me today, I have two esteemed professionals that I'm very much looking forward to talking with, Professors Shaw and Hertz. Thank you all for coming on with me today. Thanks so much for having us. It's good to be here. Delighted to be here. So today we'll be discussing y'all's article published in the Minnesota Law Review, Volume 106, Transition Administration. And before we get off on anything else, I really want to know, as an admin law dweeb, where did the germ for this idea, this piece, come from? And how did y'all act upon it to make it, you know, honestly, a wonderful, easy read for me and just a ton of fun? Well, thank you for the compliment. And if it's an easy read, that is largely due to the labor of your colleagues uh, at the Law Review. They did a terrific job whipping the piece into shape. Um, you know, in terms of the origin story, I was a young lawyer on Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign and then on the presidential transition. Um, and so I have been interested in the legal framework that surrounds presidential transitions uh, and the sort of that it's it's thinness, right? the thinness of sort of the amount of legal framework that surrounds transitions um, since I, you know, was toiling away as an associate counsel on the Obama transition project late 2008, early 2009. Um, and so I sort of had a file that was like, you know, transition related musings on my laptop for years. I'm not sure I've ever told you this, Michael, but I did. Um, and then Michael and I just had a series of conversations about it. And um, Michael is a terrific scholar of administrative law who's been doing this slightly longer than I have. Um, and I think we just had enough conversations about so, some of the legal questions and administrative law questions that transitions present that we just sort of started talking about putting pen to paper and writing an article about the legal framework that surrounds presidential, presidential transitions, um, some of the gaps, some you know potential places for reform. Um, and then it became an incredibly timely topic with the chaotic transition um, between President Trump and President Biden. Well, both chaotic transitions, both into and out of the Trump White House. So that's my version of the origin story. Michael, did I leave anything out? No, I think that's right. I, I would emphasize a little more the the uh, Obama to Trump occurrence, which, <clears throat> you know, the transitions had a, the, the, the Bush to the Obama transition was a famously successful, smooth, happy transition, despite profound political differences and some animosity from the campaign, everybody completely rose to the occasion and it was a happy story and, and a much trumpeted happy story, which was not in the slightest replicated eight years later. And, and so the, the kind of calamity or catastrophe is maybe too strong a word, but, but certainly the going off the rails and the public attention of the going off the rails of the, of the, uh, Obama to Trump administration was a big goad for us. And I should say the Bush to Obama transition was not only famously, but actually incredibly smooth and effective, right? From the inside, that was really true. It wasn't just lore. Um, and so I think that, you know, one of these questions that remained with me was, you know, as I then became a law professor and started to think about the relationship between law and norms, um, you know, sort of the source of and the specific content of these norms that's around presidential transition. And of course, we all started to wonder um, in a number of different areas about the durability of norms during the Trump administration and you know, potentially the necessity for codifying into law things that had previously existed only as norms uh, in the executive branch. So that's, that's essentially the origin. Going off that point, 
the norms bit, I think is very important, especially for myself as a law student. I was in college around the Obama to Trump administration transition, and I've been in law school now during the Trump to Biden administration transition. And the beginning of your paper actually hits on one of these norms that's a little bit silent in the Constitution, which is the one president at a time model of our government. And I'd like to give you all some space to talk about that because I've never thought about that. But as soon as I read it, it jumped off the page, it hit me in the head, and I said, well, yeah, actually, that makes a lot of sense. As a, as a formal matter, there's no escaping the one president at a time proposition. You sit down and read the Constitution and ask yourself, what role does it create for the president-elect, or for that matter, for the former president? Uh, none at all. None at all. And to the contrary, every, other, every hint is that uh, the president is the president, and there's only one. The, the vesting clause of Article 2 famously says that there shall be a president. And the 20th Amendment, you know, sets not just a day, but a time at which that light switch flips. And we go from one president to the other, just a moment. And so and president-elects over the years have used this phrase as well, one president at a time for fear of uh, appearing a little too big for their britches. Um, and yet, and yet, and yet, for an incoming president, an incoming administration to be effective, the operation has to get going long before noon on January 20th. And over the last century, that operation has become to look more and more like a kind of government operation as if actually there is the president. And then there's this figure who becomes more and more visible as January 20th approaches. And so as a formal legal matter, absolutely, there is one president. And in terms of who is commander in chief and who can issue pardons and who can make appointments and so on, there's only one person. There's only one president. But inescapably, there's another important figure, and the Constitution may be silent about it, but there is now a statutory structure for surrounding that figure, and as Kate said, a whole set of norms with kind of quasi-constitutional strength uh, that, that surround that operation. And maybe I'll just say one other thing about, I mean, Michael mentioned the 20th Amendment. It is in a document of many general terms, principles, ideas, the specificity of that moment, not just naming the date, but the, the, the specific time at which you know, the light switches, as Michael described it, and one person becomes president and one person is no longer the president, right, does seem to you know, be pretty strong evidence of this kind of exclusivity, singularity of kind of the presidency and, and presidential power. And yet, um, in practice, things actually look much more complex. Um, the document itself doesn't reflect this complexity, but practice, and maybe I'll just give one example. Um, you know, the Senate, right, a very important institutional rival of the president, has indicated through its conduct for many years that it understands the president-elect to have some quasi, at least, governmental constitutional authority. 
because the Senate gives hearings to the intended nominees of the president-elect prior to noon on January 20th when the president-elect becomes the president. Um, so that's a pretty important signal, I think, that other players in our constitutional structure understand the president-elect to be a somewhat unique figure and sort of a purely private person is not the, the sort of most accurate way to describe the figure of the president-elect. So not the president, but neither a purely private individual. And so some kind of hybrid, neither fish nor fowl entity is how I think we came to think about the figure of the president-elect. And so sort of cataloging as a descriptive matter, how the various other entities within government have either explicitly described or revealed through their course of conduct themselves to understand that, you know, actual status of president-elect was you know, sort of the first, I guess we tackled history first, but also an important part of this project because sort of pulling together in one place, these sources of both hard and soft law was something that we just hadn't seen done before and seemed a really practically useful project to undertake. You know, not all legal scholarship sort of views that as an aspiration. To me, I think practical utility is actually a really important value in legal scholarship. So, so we thought there was some inherent value in doing that. And hopefully we did, you know, we did significantly more in the paper as well. As a reader, I definitely think that you accomplished that much for sure. But building on something that both of y'all mentioned, there appears to be a locomotion almost in presidential transitions. The article really nicely sets out the history of transitions and how they start as fairly modest, you know, movements between authority to the Reagan administration and their transition, which was in itself absolutely locomotion, qua locomotion. It was a machine. And now, of course, we have massive transitions that are in themselves almost agency-like. And I'm wondering, is this really just time passing, things got faster in Washington, or is this the building of a new area of law that's in its infancy, but very much not in its infancy? You know, the history was really fun to dive into because you're exactly right. There is almost nothing that could call itself a transition for the first few administrations. Um, and you're right that, you know, Reagan is identified by folks who study the presidency and transitions as one turning point. There's, you know, 32 who were to FDR in 1932 is a pretty important uh, uh, turning point as well um, in that FDR actually really assembles a very large team prior to the transition um, and begins to work diligently to sort of address sort of what the policy agenda of the incoming administration will be. Obviously, the nation is in crisis. It's important that the new administration take over and, and sort of hit the ground running in the famous phrase. Um, and, but so those I think are two kind of important breaks. Um, but yeah, early on, I mean, you have just very, very little substantive exchange between outgoing and incoming presidents, sometimes acrimony, sometimes disinterest, sometimes exchanges about, you know, things like whether to retain a housekeeper and how many horses will be left in the White House stable um, and nothing more substantive than that. But obviously we have long since left those days behind. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's, you know, in part the sort of growth in the scope and complexity of the federal government. And, you know, there's also just, you know, at, 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 in the early days, you know, these operations such as they were didn't even happen in DC at all. Um, and so sort of the shifting of the locus of transition activity to Washington DC and sort of the formalization um, is, you know, a kind of result is I think intertwined with the growth, both technological advances and the growth in the kind of expansiveness and complexity of government and the administrative state. Um, but it was really a lot of fun to go back and actually look at the history of um, transitions um, because it really there was there was nothing again in the early days that really even could have properly be call, been called transition. 
Um, and today they're massive, I think, agency-like operations. And so we sort of trace that trajectory. I mean, it's a little hard to disentangle the threats in, in your question. Um, one significant factor, as always, is money. And the fact that uh, <clears throat> until the 1960s, uh, presidential transition operations were completely privately funded or essentially unfunded and therefore smaller, period. Um, and Congress in 1963, at the urging of John F. Kennedy, uh, adopts the Presidential Transition Act, it's signed into law in 1964. So the first transition that actually takes place pursuant to it um, is, is 1968. And uh, the PTA has been amended many times since, but it, it did, you know, one essential thing it did was make significant amounts of money available for transitions. And the, if the money is there, it's going to be spent. And so one driving force in, in increasing the size and scope um, is simply that the feds are paying for it. Now, the feds are paying it for, for good reason. The money isn't being wasted. Um, but this, and it's with regard not just to the funding, the kind of relationship between how it is the Presidential Transition Act reflects changes in presidential transitions and to what extent it produces changes in presidential transitions. It's very hard to disentangle. Both those things are absolutely happening at the same time. Jumping off that point, I think the, the Presidential Transition Act is really at the core of a lot of what's going on in the article, but it's certainly not the end of it, right? There are many other areas of law, and actually there's a lot of law going on that's kind of in a nucleus, just all rolling around this one act. If you could talk maybe a little bit about the Presidential Transition Act, I doubt that, or Presidential Transition Act, apologies, I doubt that many people have gone through that act and read it very carefully, and there any law school class. I, I have never taught it in any law school class. Nor have I. <laughs> um, well, the, the act does a couple of things. It, it's it's uh, essential goal is to provide necessary support from the government to the incoming transition team. And it doesn't directly regulate the incoming transition team. It does in essence, regulate the government operation that is there to support the incoming transition, provides funding, and it does indirectly impose some obligations on the incoming uh, operation in order to qualify for that funding, including, for example, under the most recent amendments, adopting an ethics pledge, having everyone in the transition for the incoming administration sign an ethics pledge, including entering into a memorandum of agreement with the General Services Administration about how the operation is going to run and so on. But the two essential things it does are, uh, as I said, provide funding, funding which will be used <clears throat> to pay staffers, um, to provide offices, um, and, uh, and to provide uh, technical sort of communication support and so on. Among other things, the incoming transition gets uh, government email addresses, for example. Um, 
And so there is the financial support, there's the logistical support. And the third thing, I said two, but I've got three. Uh, the third thing is uh, to create within the agencies an apparatus, uh, which will be there to facilitate and smooth the uh, incoming uh, operation and ability, enable them to figure out what's going on in the agencies, what the priorities are, who's who, what's been happening, so that they're not starting from scratch on day one. And so that, um, among other things, each agency has to identify a transition director. Um, each agency has to come up with a briefing book completed by November 1st. In other words, before we know who the next president is, that's quite deliberate, right? To prepare a brief set of briefing materials for the incoming administration. And it creates a, a, all those agency transition directors are together in a transition director's council. And separately, there's a, a transition coordinating council, which is more focused on the White House. And all of this is to sort of plan and assist in, in the transition. So um, that has kind of changed over time. The amount of money has changed. The superstructure has changed. The requirement of transition creating coordinators was added later and so on. Um, it has all been a shift towards more formal, more, um, more of an explicit superstructure. And then finally, you know, one critical kind of aspect of the act and shift in greater emphasis over time, which is at the heart of the article, is increasing reliance on career rather than political staff to do all the things I just described. And maybe one key example of that is the 2016 amendments to the PTA actually require the creation of this federal transition coordinator who by statute must be a senior career official. So the government-wide coordinator of kind of all matters transition related must be a career official. Um, and so we think that that's a pretty significant development, right? Explicitly centering and empowering someone who is a career official as sort of the government-wide lead in coordinating the transition. That, that person has to be in the GSA. And it's not the person who makes the famous ascertainment, which was such an issue in the fall of 2020. Um, but it's the person who kind of on the ground in a day-to-day -day way is making sure the operation is running smoothly. That empowerment of government agents, career service individuals, is really one of the, I would say it's one of the points that I took out of your article, is that that is a trend almost, and it's an area that law may be going, but definitely should be going too. Is that the trend overall past 2016 or is this something that is going to continue to need more work? Is it going to be something that is unfinished? Let me situate it slightly because it's, it's an example of a larger set of issues about how government works and how agencies work. Um, there is a, you know, at the head of every agency is a political appointee. And that person changes with the administration. Um, but the huge majority of people doing the day-to-day -day work of the agency, of course, are career staff. And they are there over the years from one administration to the next. And they have an obligation as employees to follow the instructions of their superiors on the organization chart. Um, and, uh, but they know a lot more than the political appointees. 
They know where the skeletons are. They know the workarounds. They know the history. They know the they know what happened the last time we tried to do this, and so on. And it is a common experience for political appointees from both parties to find that the sort of just saying "let's do this" doesn't translate into it happening, for better or worse. Um, and so the relationship between political and career staff in an agency is, it, it really can't be, its importance cannot be overstated and its complexity cannot really be overstated. Um, and it's more a political scientist topic or a public administration scholar's topic than a law professor's topic. Um, but it's one that law professors are paying increasing attention to because it's just so indispensable to understanding how agencies operate. So when you think about transitions, you have, you know, political folks coming in, political folks going out, assuming there's a change in parties, there's just been an election, they're likely not to like each other very much. They're likely to have hugely different priorities. They're likely they each feel the other is ruining the country. And that is a prescription for um, at least stalemate and maybe, maybe kind of disruption and sabotage, mutual sabotage, which is avoided or at least mitigated by shifting roles from the uh, political appointees to the career staff who are there for the long term, who have an institutional interest, who of course are going to have political preferences, but who by the very nature of their job are used to the idea that um, the, the goal is to be kind of professional, serious, and take the long-term interest of the agency in the country hard. Maybe I'll just say, you know, these longstanding trends and tensions that Michael identifies um, feel to us to have potentially different salience in a hyperpolarized moment in which partisan antipathy is at higher and higher levels, and thus the risk of a not only acrimonious but actually obstructive transition should too much transition-related power reside in the hands of outgoing political appointees um, seems increasingly dangerous, and thus the imperative. Now we're again charting, we think as a descriptive matter, a trend of increasing empowerment of career officials, but we also uh, make a plug for accelerating that trend and, and for resting more power in career officials, um, precisely because we think that the risk of, you know, future transitions looking, you know, even worse potentially than the 2016 and 2020. Now I should say the 2016, my sense is that actually the outgoing Obama team did seek to make itself quite available and helpful to the incoming uh, Trump team, but that the Trump team did not take advantage of those overtures. Um, but certainly there, you know, neither of these was um, an optimal transition. Uh, and yet, you know, we think that the possibility of more mischief on the part of, of political appointees um, is significant if there are future, you know, inter-party transitions in this, you know, hyper-polarized moment. I'll say that, you know, again, going back to this law versus norms, what we're talking about now are emphasizing the legal changes in the Presidential Transition Act that have explicitly given greater power to career officials, we think correctly, and the opportunities for more of that. 
as the norm issue remains, especially in like other settings that aren't reached by the Presidential Transition Act. So Kate was mentioning earlier the Senate's cooperation with regard to intended nominees. And, you know, historically, at least for almost all the entire cabinet, they all got hearings before January 20th, before they were officially nominated. Um, and so that, boom, the instant the, nom- the, the uh, uh, inauguration took place, they could be formally nominated and confirmed. Um, that didn't happen in 2021. Um, a handful of intended nominees got hearings before January 20th, meaning on January 19th. It, it really, everything was delayed and it grew out of exactly the polarization that Kate is talking about. And that's one where the norm broke down a bit. There is no relevant law. Um, and it's hard to imagine there being a relevant law for that one. I think jumping off that just a little bit, one of the, I guess one of the philosophies that I felt was an undercurrent in this article is the idea that law cannot supplant norms, but it certainly can help them materialize and allow for seamless transitions, make sure that the transitions hit the ground running. And I guess to cap this discussion off, is there a way of, outside of perhaps just the act itself and the apparent law that surrounds it, is there a method of, I would say, embracing a return to the norms that maybe America was used to a little bit before the last couple transitions? Or, as I would better put it, is there a way of turning back the clock to get back to the speedier, more well-oiled machine that I grew up with as, you know, young Lee, for example? I hope so, but you're I don't, too, I'm not confident. You're young to be, to be nostalgic. <laughs> this, this wave of nostalgia from this law student is a little depressing. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I think we would love to, and... I also think we don't feel confident that we can trust um, the durability of some of those norms after having seen so many of them unsettled in the last few years. Um, And I think for that reason, we do think that you're right, there is an inescapably norm bound or driven aspect to transitions. I don't think, for example, I don't think you could constitutionally legislate to compel the Senate to hold hearings for the intended nominees of the president-elect, you could try, um, but I'm not sure you could do it. Uh, and other, many other aspects of transition, um, I think, are would be hard to codify. And so I think that there, to a degree, there will be norms that will continue um, to largely structure these, you know, periods of time and these relationships and these activities. Um, and yet, I, I'm not sure is sort of an aspirational sort of checklist of norms we'd love to see restored is of great value because I think that we have seen how subject to modification these norms, you know, in particular, I'm talking about inside the executive branch are. Um, And so I think that actually taking the lessons of the last couple of transitions, I think the the best path forward would be um, to to, to do more to strengthen as a matter of law um, some aspects of transition, um, and and then hopefully those do, um, and and you know including empowering career officials, um, but hopefully those do 
further reinforce the norms. I mean, I, I guess maybe to take a step back, as far as we can tell, the norms that have largely governed transition um, held in the case of the career officials who were involved with the transition, even in this most recent one. Um, so there did seem there were you know scattered stories one heard of obstructive behavior by political appointees. Obviously, the outgoing president did everything in his power to obstruct the sort of foundational event in the transition, which is the inauguration of a successful uh, candidate for president. Um, and I think you saw political officials inside the Trump administration work to thwart transition. But our general sense is there was probably a range of kind of the effectiveness and thoroughness of the briefing books prepared by each agency and the degree of cooperation um, that you know, the incoming Biden team received from various agencies and, and entities inside the federal, the executive branch. Um, but as a general matter, those norms largely held. So so I guess uh, after initially resisting your, your question, I, I think I agree that we could do more with law to reinforce these norms, um, but also there is reason to feel um, as though, at least in some quarters of government that is involved in transition operations, um, the norms uh, largely did hold. The Partnership for Public Service tomorrow is releasing a big report about how this transition went. So we can we'll we'll update that answer tomorrow. Um, I, I would say that you know we we live really in an extraordinary moment in and it's not just the extreme polarization between the two parties. So that's a big piece of it. It is the lack of confidence in election results. And I think it's impossible to answer your question now because we're going through a period where either we're going to emerge with overall a greater confidence in our elections or with all our confidence on both sides destroyed. And if, you know, we come out of the current fight over uh, whether Donald Trump actually won the election or not, and the current fight over voting rights and voting processes with overall a kind of belief that elections are valid, sound, and not rigged, then yes, I think there is hope for exactly what you described because all the transition is, it's, it's, the, it's the kind of detailed superstructure of a fundamental event, which is the peaceful transition of power, people tra peaceful transfer of power arising out of an election. And people may be furious and upset about the outcome, but they accept the outcome. That's the whole point. And we're now at an extremely dangerous moment where people... Many people are not accepting that outcome. And, and if the outcome is disputed, then you cannot have a successful transition because each side will feel that disruption is morally right. And so, so I don't know. I mean, I'm a little gloomy. I'm at least worried. I won't say I'm gloomy. I'm worried. Um, and we'll know more before the next election. And then the next election will take place in a way that will either pull us back from the brink or be a catastrophe in a way that we haven't seen yet. Well, I hope for certain that it is the former, not the latter. 
Thank you all so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you, professors. Pleasure was ours. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Experto Crede podcast. All the opinions discussed in this podcast are the opinions solely of the authors and myself and do not reflect their institutions, nor do they reflect the opinions of the University of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota Law School, the Minnesota Law Review, or any other parties. <laughs>